0: On behalf of the State of the State Fellowship, I'd like to say how proud we are to have Quentin Skinner hold uh, the inaugural lecture of the State of the State Fellowship lecture series, um, and how excited we are uh, to hear what he has to say about the state. Uh, As most of you know, uh, Professor Skinner has made some of the most important recent contributions in the study of the state. His most recent book is on Hobbes and Republican Liberty from 2008. Um, In this book, he shows how Hobbes was not simply a dispassionate analyst, but engaged in a debate over rival theories of liberty. One theory has its origin in classical antiquity and is associated with the Roman Republican tradition, uh, which emphasizes that freedom is subverted by arbitrary power. Hobbes' view is a challenge to this theory, emphasizing freedom as absence of interference. Skinner has presented the Roman Republican tradition also as a store of ideas for how to think about liberty and the state in the present. The Republican view of freedom constitutes an alternative to both rights-based liberalism and moralistic theories of human self-realization. Philip Pettit has taken Skinner's work uh, as the departure for an influential revival of uh, republicanism as a philosophical vision. Many of Skinner's articles on Hobbes and Machiavelli has been collected in the three volumes Visions of Politics, published in 2002. Visions of Politics also contains one volume called Regarding Method, where many of the path-breaking articles in what has become known as the Cambridge School of the History of Ideas can be found. Many of the articles suggest that studying ideas in history, when we study ideas in history, we should pay attention not just to what is being said, but also to who is saying it and to what end. Often those ends can be reached only by intellectual battle, and that is the case even for, most, for the most scholarly, rigorous, and abstract theories. As Professor Skinner writes, what the historical record strongly suggests is that no one is above the battle because the battle is all there is. As I said, Professor Skinner is perhaps the most important contributor to the Cambridge School of the History of Ideas, and he has spent most of his academic life at that university, most recently as Regis Professor of Modern History. He has now moved on to become the Barber Beaumont Professor of the Humanities at Queen Mary. Professor Skinner was the winner of the prestigious Balsam Prize in 2006, and he has used the award to set up a research network on freedom and the construction of Europe. The group will publish two volumes examining key philosophical, religious, and political controversies surrounding the idea of freedom in Europe. Many of Professor Skinner's publications are multidisciplinary in their scope. And his work continues to interest, fascinate, and antagonize scholars, not just in history, but in philosophy and politics. Therefore, it is particularly fitting that he is the first speaker in the lecture series organized by the State of the State Fellowship, which brings together scholars from all the social sciences. The lecture series itself will start in the fall. The Fellowship in the State of the State, which is funded by the Volkswagen Foundation, has currently three postdoctoral fellows here at Oxford. And we will have, additionally, three starting in the fall. I would like to thank our organizer at Oxford, Sarah binser hobolt and our coordinator at Bremen University, Professor Lothar Probst, for their generous support with these lectures. Please join me in welcoming Quentin Skinner.
1: Well thank you very much, Fredo. It's a very great pleasure to be here and to be inaugurating what sounds like a really spectacular series. I'm going to speak under the title The Idea of the State A Genealogy Well, before I begin to try and trace this genealogy, I need to underline two limitations of the argument. It has other limitations, but these two are very important to bring out. One is that I assume that the only method by which we can hope confidently to identify the views of specific writers about the concept of the state will be to focus on the precise circumstances in which they invoke and discuss the term, the state. So I'm going to limit myself as much as possible to writers who actually use that terminology, because that is for sure to show that they're in possession of the concept. Of course, you could be in possession of the concept without using the terminology. But that opens a a huge vista, which I'm deliberately blocking off. Secondly, as that already intimates, I'm going to limit myself entirely to the Anglophone tradition. I regret the parochialism, but there are good reasons for it. One is just a desire to keep the materials under some kind of control. And as Radar has said, the kind of way I like to try and talk about these historical issues is to try and show that there is always a contest, a dialogue happening. That's much easier to show within one uh, intellectual tradition. There's not, of course, to say that it's an isolated tradition. And that's not what I shall presuppose in what I say. But I will stick with the Anglophone case. One other preliminary before I try and get going is that you might entertain a possible doubt about my approach. Why genealogy? I have to say I've come to feel that this approach is in the case of certain concepts central to our political and moral discourse sort of forced upon us. It's a Nietzschean thought. It's sort of forced upon us simply because and I give away the game at the outset here, it seems to me that there is no agreed concept to which the term state has ever referred. So the suggestion which you still find very widely canvassed in handbooks of political science, that what we should be looking for is a neutral analysis to which we might in principle all come to agree, that seems to me a a hopeless project. And indeed, I would go so far as to make the explicitly Nietzschean point that any moral or political term that has become so deeply enmeshed in so many ideological disputes over such a long period of time, as has the concept of the state, is going to defy definition. I mean, that's just going to follow. And that that is Nietzsche's reason in the genealogy of morality for writing about moralitet as a genealogy. What we're going to see as my genealogy unfolds, is that there just is no concept here with natural boundaries. There's no essence that we could get to. Now that's not, of course, to deny that one definition of the state has come to predominate, for it has. There's a very strong tendency in recent times to suppose that when we talk about the state, uh, we're simply referring to some established apparatus or institutions. Of legal and political control. So in common parlance, for example, any newspaper you open now, and this is actually rather a recent phenomenon, but it's true, I think, any newspaper that you, you open now that talks about government will use that term interchangeably with the state. The state, the government. Those terms are treated as synonyms. But the question that remains is whether our thinking may have become impoverished as the result of abandoning a number of earlier and more explicitly normative understandings of the state that a genealogical survey will bring to light. So to put it in rather fashionable terms, can, we, um, can a genealogy free us to reimagine the state in different and perhaps more fruitful ways? So that's really the question this afternoon. And after presenting the genealogy, I will turn quite explicitly to it at the end. Okay, Uh, genealogies, unlike traditional narratives, don't have obvious starting points. But it seems to me that within anglophone legal and political debate, the earliest moment at which we come upon widespread discussions about the state, statehood, the powers of the state, spoken about in exactly that way, is at the end of the 16th, beginning of the 17th centuries. Because it's here, I think for the first time, that the term state begins to be widely used to refer to a specific type of union or political association, that of a universitas, a community of people living subject to a sovereign or or to some other recognised ruling group. So that's where I want to begin. Now, that is not to say that in speaking of these universitates, these civil communities, the term state was the one most preferred, Uh, rather not, I would say, if there was, some writers spoke about the realm um, when they wanted to talk in these terms, some spoke uh, even about the nation, most spoke about the body politic. And the crucial implication is that this is a body. The body politic is a body incapable of action in the absence of a head. So this head-body metaphor is being made to do a great deal of work. But it's by a relatively simple process, I think, that the term state gets inserted into this lexicon. Um, In the Renaissance tradition of advice books for princes, one of the questions that had always been raised, most famously raised by Machiavelli, but raised throughout the tradition, is what does such a a figure, what does such a prince, such a ruler have to do to maintain his state? Mantinari lo stato in in the Italian. Um, Meaning, of course, stato, his status, his standing as a prince. What do you have to maintain your state as a prince, your princely state? Um, Now, it was generally agreed that one of the things you have to do if you want to avoid a blow against your state, a coup d'etat. Um, is to worry about the welfare of the people under your charge. The welfare of this body, this body politic, this community as a whole. And princes are repeatedly warned, very strongly in Machiavelli, in the Principe, that they cannot hope to preserve their own stato, their own status, their own standing, unless they keep that body, the body of the people, il popolo, in security. And keep the body continue the metaphor, in, uh, in good health. So there's a state to be maintained. If you want to maintain your state as a prince, there's a particular state of affairs that has to be maintained. That has to be maintained, the security of the body politic. And by a very small um, linguistic slippage, but by an enormous conceptual shift, what begins to be said is that that what the prince has a duty to maintain is lo stato. Well, it's a deep pun. You can never disaggregate that. Are we talking about the prince maintaining his state? Or are we saying that there is something called the state that the prince has a duty to maintain? Well, at first, you just could stare at the page forever and not be sure. But eventually, it becomes clear that what's being spoken of is um, a state which the prince has a duty to maintain. For an illustration of these tendencies, uh, I, I turn to—I think you can't do better than to turn to the République of uh, Bodin, um, first published in uh, 1576. Translated into English, uh, therefore, it becomes an English text for me as early as 1606. At the beginning of Book One, Bodin's translator, Richard Knollys, translates him as saying—and I quote—that we need a definition of the city. Kivatas is obviously the, the word echoing there, the city or state. So here the state is being equated with the kivatas, the body of the people. And I quote Baudin in Knowledge's translation, it is neither the walls, neither the persons, that maketh the city, but the union of a people under the same sovereignty of government. So to institute a monarchy. I'm still quoting, is to create a public authority in which the people in general, and as it were in one body, swear allegiance to one sovereign as head of state. So there you have it. Now I'm going to call this way of thinking about the state, um, that's to say that it's the name of a body subject to a sovereign head. I'm going to call that the absolutist view of the state. And I next want to note that this way of thinking about the state is picked up in two distinct strands of legal and political discourse in early 17th century England. One arises out of scholastic discussions about suprema protestas, especially as conducted by such luminaries of the second scholastic as Vittoria, uh, Bellarmine, and above all, Suarez. These philosophers all allow that the universitas of the populace is the original bearer of supreme power. But they always insist that the, it's a rather mysterious claim, the act of instituting a state means that, as Suarez puts it, there's a quasi alienatio of that supremacy, which they divest themselves of it, and it now becomes a right of those governing them. And that is a, a point of view echoed in, in a very a, a literature very much influenced by Suarez in the first two decades of the 17th century in England. In texts like, for example, Kellison's right and jurisdiction of the prelate and the prince, you find exactly that argument. I just quote, as soon as the people make choice of a king, they subject themselves to an absolute ruler who thereafter exercises supreme power, suprema protestas, over, and here it comes again, the whole body of the state. The other and still more influential way in which this absolutist theory gets articulated is as part of the doctrine of the divine right of kings. So if you look, for example, at Robert Filmer's Patriarcha, which is written in the 1630s, probably in 1630, although, of course, not published until much later, not printed, uh, it's scribally published. Um, That begins, as I'm sure you remember, with the stigmatizing as a dangerous heresy of the belief in the natural liberty of mankind, What that fails to recognize, as Filmer insists, is I quote, that all rulers receive their authority not from the people, but from the ordination of God. Kings are the vicegerents of God on earth and enjoy their power over the body, and here it comes again, of the commonwealth or state. Okay, there's the absolutist view head of a body, and the body is the state. And now I want to note that although that absolutist view is very widely defended in the opening decades of the 17th century, you also find it, it gets into dialogue or to, uh, it becomes subject to a terrific barrage of attack. Uh, and the, the point of insertion into this debate, I think, is as follows. Critics agree that when we talk about the state, we are indeed referring to a civil union, a body of people under government. But what they want to repudiate is this head-body metaphor. The universitas, these writers want to say, is not not a mere headless torso in need of a sovereign head to guide and control it. On the contrary, it is equally possible, they want to say, for sovereignty to be possessed by the union of the people themselves. So you find these writers using the term state to refer not To a passive and obedient community living under a sovereign but to the body of the people conceived as the sovereign. Well, who speaks in these terms? Well, it's complicated. I I think the simplest thing I can say is that you need to focus on three converging strands of thought here. One is a group of writers whom I privately think of as political anatomists. That's to say Writers whose principal interest is in comparing the different forms of government to be found in the different countries of Europe. It's quite a large Italianate literature which gets translated into English in the early 17th century. For example, the most famous example, Giovanni Botero's um, The Most Famous Kingdoms and Commonwealths. Uh, that's the English translation of 1601. Or Edwin Sands' um, imitation, I would say, of Botero, 1605, his relations surveying the different constitutional arrangements in all the states, and he calls them that, of Europe. Now as these writers observe, if you look at all the states of Europe, um, many of them are monarchies, but a number of them are not. Some people, as they say, are not living in that state. I mean, there's this constant pun on what state you're living in. Are you living in a monarchical state? Um, And of course, what they basically want to ask is, what is the state or condition in which the community lives. But they they slide into referring to those communities which have sovereignty over themselves as states, because they need a contrast with monarchies. Many of these polities are monarchies, but many are living in a state in which they govern themselves. And these tend to be called states by contrast with monarchies. Secondly, connectedly. But this is a very different claim. There's a large Italianate literature which gets, um, very interestingly, that it begins to get uh, translated in the last years of Elizabeth's reign and the beginning of the 17th century where some of these questions are, as you might say, open. There's a large literature which is interested in the claim that to find yourself in a state in which the people rule and you are not ruled by a monarch is to find yourself in a distinctly superior political state. That is the state that you should prefer. So that's the fundamental view of Contarini's Government of Venice, which is published in English in 1599, or Boccalini's Newfound Politics. I'm giving the English titles, um, translated in 1626. But of course, most influentially, this is a core claim of Machiavelli's Discorsi, first published in English in 1636. Now, this preference that you find in this translated Italian literature. Um, This preference for the rule of the popolo is that only under such conditions of rule, this tradition of thought wants to say, can you retain your liberty? Or as they like to put it, can you live in a free state? So this punning is still going on. To live under a monarchy, they all want to say, is to live subject to discretionary and hence arbitrary powers, and is therefore to live, at least in part, on dependence Uh, 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 upon the dependence upon the will of the monarch, who will have prerogative powers which are ex-hypothesi, simply his will. But as the digest of Roman law had laid down, to live subject to the will of another is what it means to be a slave as opposed to a freeman. So the claim emerges, if you want to preserve your freedom as a citizen, you must not live under a monarchy. So the conclusion that they draw is that if you, addressing you, want to live in a free state, you must live in a self-governing republic, as a result of which self-governing republics come to be described as not just states by contrast with monarchies, but free states. Um, A much bolder and indeed um, uh, a more invidious claim, because now we have a contrast uh, with monarchies in which you're being told. That the, the free state is the one to which you should aspire to live. Okay, thirdly, um, you'd need to take note of a more general line of attack on monarchical absolutism that begins to emerge slightly later um, in the beginning of the English Civil Wars. And here the magical date would be 1642, where there begins to arise, and for me the key figure here, he's slightly off-center, but is of extraordinary importance, since practically every monarchical writer then replied to him, is the figure of Henry Parker writing a series of tracts in 1642, stemming and drawing very strongly, in Parker's case, from a combination of scholastic discussions of Summa Potestas. He's clearly been reading Suarez, whom he he repeatedly quotes in translation. as adapted by Huguenot publicists, radical Huguenot publicists of the previous generation, whom he's also been reading. Now, what he's drawing on is a minority of schoolmen had always argued that the communitas, the the primitive community of people, can never alienate its sovereignty. This view of Suarez's is a mistake. It can only ever delegate it. And so if there is an apparatus of power, it is nevertheless an apparatus in which the sovereign remains the body of the people. Of course, they may delegate its exercise, but if you ask who is sovereign, the answer is the the people remains the possessor of summa Potestas. Now, that's the view that Parker Englishes, especially in the observations of 1642, in which he refers with remarkable freedom to what he keeps calling the whole body of our state, the whole state of England. Of course, there's still a kind of a pun here. What sort of a state is England in? But that is to ask about the state. Well, he says, the negative answer is that sovereignty in our state cannot lie, as the royalists are contending with the king as head of state, because, and here you get the scholastic doctrine, the king may be maior singulis; He may be greater than any one of us, but he can't be my or universities, he must be minor universities, he must be lesser in status, in standing, than us considered as a people. So the positive answer that you find in Parker, and I quote, is sovereign power resides with the whole body of the people or state. Now, I'm going to call that the populist theory of the state. I mean, it is a theory of the state. It is that when we use the term, we are referring to the sovereignty of the people. Okay. no sooner is that put into circulation, now you're in the heart of the the battle of words at the outbreak of the English Revolution, because this is going to be vehemently repudiated by royalists of every stamp. It's a very complex and not perhaps sufficiently investigated uh, story, the high complexity of... Uh, monarchists and absolutist thinking in this time, but I just want to look briefly at three different answers that um, thinkers whom you might call royalists, or you should certainly call monarchists, produce in the face of Parker's populist theory of the state. One is simply to revert to the divine right claim that the people is just a headless trunk, it's just a body, it's in need of a head, and, and that's what, as it were, all um, Anglican clerical writers of 1642 find to say about Parker. But some of these Anglican clerical writers are a higher class of person and that brings us to a second strand of thinking which I, I think the most notable example is Thomas Hobbes's great adversary John Bramhall, who writes uh, a spectacular uh, treatise called The Serpent Salve which is a line by line refutation of Parker published in 1643 in which he says, I quote, we must begin by recognising that power is indeed inherent originally in the people, quoting Parker and agreeing with him, and that we may describe this collective body as the body of the state. But when the people, I'm still quoting, submit to government, the legal act performed is the divesting of themselves of sovereignty, in consequence of which their ruler becomes, and here it is once more, the absolute head of the whole body of the state. So there's a second possible answer. You go back to this sort of what you might call rationalist absolutism. But the third answer is that there emerges in the defense of absolutism a a different view of the state. And I want to talk about a different theory where it's conceptualized in neither of the sets of terms that I've so so far laid out. And among the absolutists I want to talk about, incomparably the most important, although there are others, um, is Thomas Hobbes. In the Leviathan of 1651, he tells us that in putting forward his theory of public power, as he says at the outset, he will speak not of the men, but in the abstract about the nature of the commonwealth or state. So this is a treatise about the commonwealth, as it says on the title page, or state, Kivitas or state. Kivitas, commonwealth, state. For Hobbes, these turn out to be synonyms. So I want to say a word about Hobbes' theory of the state. Well, this will be familiar territory to you, and I won't dwell on it so long, but it does raise a whole new um, picture to add to my story so far. Well, Hobbes, remember, opens his analysis by reflecting on what he calls the natural condition of mankind, in which he promptly launches a scathing attack. I can't help feeling that it's Parker he has in mind, because he may not have read Parker, but certainly he read Bramall. And if you read Bramall, he gives you Park- the entirety of Parker's treatise is in Bramall. That's the good scholastic way of going forward. You quote your opponent and you refute him. You quote him again, you refute him. So you could easily read Parker if you read Bramall. Um, So the attack that Hobbes mounts is on this underlying idea, this Suarezian idea, or indeed um, in the opponents of Suarez, this scholastic idea of the body of the people, the corpus politicum. And one, I think, of Hobbes's fundamental aspirations in presenting his celebrated picture of the natural condition of mankind as one of a multitude of people living in a state of mutual and endless hostility to each other is to say That to think of the people in nature as a united body is just nonsense. They're not a united body. There's no such thing in nature as a body of the people. There's just a mere multitude living, as Hobbes uh, interestingly puts it, in, uh, in conditions of solitude which are dissociate. They're dissociate from each other. There's no societas, so it's not a communitas at all. So that's the polemics, I think of the celebrated account in chapter 13. Okay, so Hobbes, not at all happy with that radical scholastic story about the state. But he's no happier with the absolutist story. He's, of course, no happier with the divine right view uh, that sees the people as a passive and obedient body in obedience to a sovereign as head of state. He fully endorses, very important about Hobbes, he fully endorses the parliamentarian claim Um, that no lawful uh, political association can be brought into being without the consent of all who are subject to it. That's the only possible lawful mechanism. Of course, you could have a state set up by other means, but it's not a lawful state. And he adds that even after the members of a multitude have subjected themselves to sovereign power, they remain the authors of whatever their sovereign does in their name. So there's this constant sense of the presence of the multitude. To put it the other way around, Hobbes never talks in the typical manner of absolutists about the reverence due to kings as God's vicegerent on earth. He always maintains that the status of any monarch, however completely absolutist, is simply that of an authorized representative. And of course, he gives an exacting account of what the duties of such a representative are, the Office of the Sovereign Representative, Chapter 30. So, in sum, as you see, and uh, I'm still trying to show all of this as sort of locked in debate, uh, all of these stories, Hobbes doesn't like the, the radical scholastic story at all, but he also doesn't like the standard absolutist story at all. But those are the two going theories of the state, so he needs a new theory of the state. And that's what he supplies. Now, his point of departure in supplying it is um, to remind us of his view that sovereigns are representatives. And a representative, he lays down early in the analysis, chapter 16, is someone who takes on the role of speaking or acting in the name of another person. That's what we mean by a representative. A representative is someone who has the right to speak and act in the name of somebody else. But in such a way, Hobbes wants to say, that the actions of the representative can be attributed to the the person represented. So he has the bolder thesis that attributed actions are actions. OK, sovereigns are representatives. they can't be anything else. So big question. What is the name of the person whom the sovereign represents? So, representatives must represent another person. Whom do sovereigns represent? Well, to see Hobbes' answer, you, you have to remember his distinctive account of the political covenant. As we've seen, what he really wants to deny is the traditional view that that is a covenant between the body of the people on the one hand and a ruler on the other, the sort of story you get in the Vendicia Contratranos or in any um, doctrine of radical scholasticism. And the reason for that is there's no such thing as the body of the people. So it cannot be a legal entity that enters into a contract. That's just impossible. So he knocks out that entire tradition of thinking. So how can there be a political covenant at all? Well, his celebrated answer is it can only be a covenant of each with each. We can all covenant amongst ourselves, and that covenant will be about who shall be sovereign that you can do. And then when you have entered into such a covenant, you have a sovereign whose acts count as your acts. You own them. Now with that analysis, Hobbes arrives at the central contention he wants to make about the implications of the political government, which is that when you authorize a sovereign in that way, we all agree me with you, you with you, everyone with everyone, we agree who shall be sovereign, we authorize that person, and we remain the author of his or her actions, it can be a man or a woman whom we authorize. When we do that we cease to be a multitude. We are now a unified group. We weren't before. But of course we're now unified because we're unified by a common agreement to live subject to law and by the fact that there's now a determining will, that of our sovereign representative, whose words and actions count as our words and actions. So that we now have one will. Before, there was just every will that there is in the room. But if you have a sovereign, you have one will, because the sovereign's will counts as your will. But that's to say that we are now one person. We have one will. We are one person. And Hobbes says exactly that. I quote, a multitude of men are made one person when they are by one man or one person represented. So now I can go back to my original question and we can can give the answer. Sovereigns are representatives. What's the name of the person whom they represent? Hobbes' answer is epoch making. They represent the state. The person represented by the sovereign is the person of the state. In Hobbes' words, the multitude so united in one person is called a commonwealth or state. Now, this person, the state is a person. Commonwealth is a person. It, It is, of course, as Hobbes says, only a person by fiction. It's not a real person. It's a person by fiction, but it's nevertheless the seat of sovereignty. So Hobbes is categorically distinguishing the state, not merely from the sovereign head of a body of the state, but also from the unity of the multitude. Sovereigns come and go, and the unity of the the multitude continually alters as its members are born and die. But the fictional person of the state is, at least by intention, immortal. I mean, it will be subject to disease, as Hobbes says, but you hope that it will last forever. It outlives everyone. Now, I'm going to call that the fictional theory of the state. So we've now got three completely separate theories of the state all in play at the same time by the middle of the 17th century in English political theory. Notice, though, that there's something in common with all of these theories of the state, which is that they're all trying to furnish a means of judging the legitimacy of the acts of government. Notice this categorical distinction between acts of government and the state. According to the absolutist theory, an act of government is legitimate if and only if it's performed by the sovereign who is recognized as head of state. According to the populist theory, actions of government are legitimate if and only if they are performed by the will, or of course, it has to be accepted, the represented will of the sovereign body of the people. But according to the fictional theory, the actions of governments are legitimate. As Hobbes says, they are right and agreeable to equity if and only if two conditions are satisfied. One is that they must be undertaken by a sovereign who can be a a man, or indeed a woman, or an assembly, um, duly authorized by all of us to speak in the name of the person of the state. And the other is, and this is crucial, that the actions of the sovereign must aim at the preservation of the life and health, as Hobbes says, of that person. The fundamental duty of the sovereign is to preserve the life and health of the person of the state. OK, there's a dramatic departure. Um, but it must be admitted that it had, it's quite difficult to, to articulate, I, I think, and quite difficult to understand. And anyway, it had very little impact. Uh, in English political discourse in the next generation, if you think of 1688 and the constitutional settlement of 1688, and you think of the theories of the state that were at large in those debates, the Hobson theory is never present. The debate is between Whigs who have some version of what I call the radical scholastic view, some version of the idea of popular sovereignty delegated to a parliament and instantiated in a mixed constitution, which of course is the triumphalist story, or you have the Tory story, which is, no, no, the king is the God-given head of state, and the state is simply the name of the body of the people under him. Those are, again, the two theories that do battle. However, this third force theory, what I'm calling the fictional theory, does capture the attention of a number of continental European jurists quite soon after this, or indeed before 1688, because I would say the earliest really um, major philosopher who is who was really bouleversé by Hobbes' analysis, is Pufendorf in the De Jura Naturae, um, which is not published in English until 1717, so I shall have to treat it as an early Enlightenment text, but which is published in Latin in 1672. And then, of course, becomes very well known in France through Barberac's uh, annotated translation, which appears in 1706, and has a very big impact on French jurisprudence. Writers like, I mean they're not known to fame nowadays, uh, unless you count Rousseau in their number, but Riche or Hubner, and most influentially, and a, a much greater name than Rousseau's in the age, um, Emma de Vattel in his treatise on the Law of Nations, published in 1758. Okay, by then, this fictional theory, as I'm calling it, had become assimilated into anglophone political thought. An important date is White Kennett's translation of Pufendorf into English, 1717, um, in which White Kennett makes him say at the beginning of Book Seven, when he turns to fictional persons, um, I quote the translation, the state exists as one person and is endued with understanding and will and performs particular acts which are distinct from those of the private members who make up its subjects. It is true, I'm still quoting Pufendorf, or rather Kennett's translation, that as a purely moral person, The state cannot act in its own name and stands in need of a sovereign representative. But the basic duty of such sovereigns is to preserve the safety and tranquility of the state. Still more important for this reception is this, um, it's not unimportant in the theory of international relations at this day, but this unbelievably influential text of Vattel's, published only two years after its original French version in 1758, published in English. Um, as the law of nature and nations. If you're going to understand the relations between states, Vattel says very reasonably, you're going to have to start by understanding the state. And that's the beginning of his treatise. So the opening book is not about international relations, it's about the items that are present in international relations. And those items, he says, are states. And what is a state? I quote, A state is a distinct moral person, possessing an understanding and a will peculiar to itself. This person is not itself capable of action. If it is to speak and act, there must be an agreed form of public authority to represent it. But the duty of that public authority is to preserve the life and person of the state. Okay, by this stage, we're now in the 1760s, this fictional theory, as I'm calling it, has started to capture the attention of English legal theorists, who are sort of inoculated against it by common law. But the figure who really picks this up, and of course what could be more important, is Blackstone. In the philosophical preliminaries to the mighty treatise, um, Commentaries on the Laws of England, um, published in 1765, the first volume with this fascinating um, philosophical introduction, Blackstone comes forward in explicitly Hobbesian vein. Uh, And it's hard for me not to suppose that it's Hobbes who's echoing in his head, because there are unacknowledged quotations all the way through. Um, So in this quite brief passage, Blackstone begins by insisting, and I quote, that many natural persons, each of whom has his own particular will and inclination, cannot by any natural union, it's his italics, be joined together in such a way as to produce any one uniform will of the whole. The only solution is to institute a political union And the name of this union is the state. Although the distinguishing mark of sovereignty, I'm still quoting, having the authority to legislate may equally well reside in different forms of government, the authority itself is always part of the natural and inherent right that belongs to the sovereignty of the state. So this state is the name of the sovereign. Now. That is the sort of late Enlightenment story. So you you might say, thinking genealogically, we have three circulating theories of the state now. We have an absolutist one, still flourishing. We have a, um, a populist one, which is about to be the absolute moral foundations of the American Revolution. And we have this third one. Now, this third force, the fictional theory, um, which has been, the the history of which has been brilliantly, although very allusively, written about uh, by Maitland and some of his disciples, um, becomes extremely important in uh, late Enlightenment, and indeed in 19th century continental jurisprudence, incredibly important. But the Anglophone story, which is what I'm confining myself to this evening, skids off in its own direction at this point. And maybe I'm speaking too naively here, but there seems to me a moment when you can see how this skidding off in a different direction happens. And it's this, that almost no sooner has Blackstone published than the very passage I've been quoting is subjected to an almost lethal attack by the young and hyper-aggressive Jeremy Bentham in The Fragment on Government, 1776. The fragment on God, it really is a fragment if you know the text well, um, I mean, it, I could have read it several times in the train, um, is simply a vituperative denunciation of just that passage from, Blackst- from, um, yeah, from Blackstone that I have quoted. And Bentham begins, famous remark, and you can see what it's directed to, the season of fictions is now over. The time has come to ground legal arguments on observable facts. And Bentham wants these to be facts about real individuals, as he says, and their capacity, wait for it, to experience pleasure and pain. Um, so the response to Bentham's description of the state of nature, the union of the multitude, and the creation of the idea of the state is for, ben, uh, it's for Bentham to say this passage is completely meaningless. It is just about fictions. But the law must give up fictions. And that, uh, with the rise of classical utilitarianism, had an extraordinary impact. I mean, you look in vain in any of the other major utilitarian writers of the late 18th to early 19th century, in Paley, in Godwin, or in James Newell, you look in vain for any discussion of the theory of the state. They just don't talk this language. Bentham has told them not to, is to talk fictions. And if you look um, at later utilitarian discussions, um, which are jurisprudential discussions, they still avoid it. I mean, the most famous example being um, the 1832 lectures on jurisprudence of John Austin, in which he has a massive footnote. And he says, uh, I may appear to be talking about the state. How dreadful that would be. Uh, He says, uh, of course I'm not talking about the state. There's no such thing. I'm only talking about government. When we talk about the state, all we mean is government. And likewise, in that great summarizing document of classical utilitarianism, Henry Sidgwick's Elements of Politics of 1891, I quote, when we speak of the state, we can mean nothing other than an apparatus of government empowered to command the exclusive allegiance of those living under it. So uh, throughout this period, the, the English story is a separate story. It's this commonsensical story that if we talk about the state, actually we're just talking about an apparatus of government. Well I I mean it's true that there's a reaction against this in the late 19th century when a determined effort is made to reintroduce the fictional theory into English legal and political discourse. A, a, A mighty figure here is Maitland with his attempt to generalize the theory of corporations as fictional persons to include what he calls the most triumphant fiction of all, namely the fiction of the person of the state. And those late essays of Maitland, which he was going to turn into a treatise, that would have been probably, um, well, it would have been a great work, certainly. Um, What we get instead uh, is Neo-Hegelians. And in there, you, you get a very different version of the fictional theory of the state, because it's a view that the state is indeed the name of a person, but it's not a fictional person, it's a real person. And the... The the arch-presentation of this case is in Bosonketch's Philosophical Theory of the State of 1899, in which he wants to insist that the claim that the state has a will is is a claim about a real person, because the will of the state is your will, provided that you are acting in a wholly rational way. So what it becomes rational to think of as a way of conceiving of political obligation is for you to obey the will of the state, because that is your own rational will. So there was a rather different way of reintroducing fictional discourse, because it's not actually fictional. That, of course, causes outrage and a vehement reversion to what I'm calling the commonsensical view. And you find that in a great deal of literature about the state in the early 20th century. I suppose the most irascible reply was the um, L.T. Hobhouse denunciation of... um, this whole neo-Hegelian way of thinking about the state in his Metaphysical Theory of the State, published in 1918. I quote, It is positively sinister to think of the state as anything more than the name of a governmental organisation. When we speak of the powers of the state, we are referring to acts of a government. So again, just the commonsensical story. And you find that commonsensical story even in the most ambitious attempt of that period to write a theory of the modern state, Harold Lasky's uh, book of that title, of 1919. It's a sort of irony, because what he says is, and I quote, when we speak about the state, we are merely referring to a prevailing system of legal and executive power, together with an associated apparatus of bureaucracy and coercive force. Well, he's been reading Max Weber, hasn't he? I mean, this is just to say, well, we can get an empirical definition of the state, and that's all we want. There's nothing further to be said. States, we're just talking about governments with coercive powers. There's nothing else to say. Well, Lasky did still at least suppose that the state, as he put it, was the the master noun of our political discourse, but if I'm talking about a genealogy of this, what I'm calling commonsensical view of the state, I would have to notice that at this period, I suppose really throughout 20th century political theory, um, something else happened in anglophone political discourse to the theory of the state, which is that... It was not only devalued into discussion simply about forms of government, but state or government, seen, that's to say, as um, the operation of coercive powers over a particular national territory, well, that was in turn seen as of very greatly diminishing significance. And that's already true even in the period before the First World War. Because if you think of the Hague conferences that preceded the war, ironically preceded the war, They are trying to set up, and of course under the League of Nations there is successfully set up, international courts of justice which have power to override the jurisdictions of any national state. And as a result in theorising what is going on, you begin to get an increasingly strong tendency to say, surely the state, this idea of a nation state, is just a concept which has had its day. I mean, that, that's not how to think about politics anymore. And you already find that very early in the 20th century. For example, Norman Angel, that great protagonist of the League of Nations, writing his Foundations of International Polity in 1914, I quote the introduction, to treat the state as the basic unit of political analysis now is hopelessly outdated and at variance with the facts. And I think you could say that that's actually become a cliche of political theory, a cliche of 20th century political theory, made even more of a cliche by the rise of international organizations, um, international courts of justice, the European Court, uh, founded quite specifically with power in criminal as well as in civil cases to contravene the national laws of individual member states if they are in turn in contravention of the Convention of Human Rights promulgated in 1950. Or indeed, not just international organizations, but multinational corporations, which notoriously have, in the third world, had the power to coerce states um, in respect of both employment and investment. So the state begins to look marginalized, begins to look um, supervened upon, begins to look fragile. And that, I think, was something which by the end of the 20th century was, especially in the theory of international relations, just taken to be a datum. So if you look, for example, at any of, I mean, to take a very eminent example, Richard Falk's writings of the 1990s, um, I quote, "Um, the state is now shrinking, retreating, it is fading into the shadows. So the concept of the state is losing theoretical insignificance. For the first time in more than half a millennium, the state is on the way out. Well, that uh, brings my genealogy down to the beginning of the 21st century, uh, and in a way brings it to a close. And in the, the five minutes remaining to me, I just want to offer some kind of a reckoning here, because the point of genealogy surely has to be critique. Well, I'm very struck by the fact that the story of the state, the genealogy I've tried to trace, is a very complex intellectual inheritance. And yet, in contemporary political theory, and especially in international relations theory, we confront it in such a way that we find astonishingly little to say about it. The term state, we think, is a way of referring to an established state uh, apparatus of government and nothing more. And such states are of diminishing significance in our newly globalized world. I just want to say in conclusion that that is where we've got to and that seems to me deeply unsatisfactory, really deeply unsatisfactory. I mean, one weakness is surely the theory of international relations has been extraordinarily over eager to announce the death of the state. I mean, do we really need to point out that The world's leading states remain the principal actors on the international stage, and by far the most significant actors within their own territories, and indeed have become more aggressive of late. They patrol their borders far more. They maintain an unparalleled degree of surveillance over their own citizens. They're also highly interventionist. And in the face of the collapsing banking systems of the capitalist world in 2008, came forward as lenders of last resort. I mean, to speak in these circumstances since 2008, I quote Richard Falk, whom I deeply admire, again, that the state is fading into the shadows, I mean, this is inattentive. (laughs) (laughs) The concept of the state is indispensable to make sense of our current political world. I just offer that as an obvious truth. But it doesn't get us very far, that obvious truth, because the question is, well, what view of the state do you need to make the best sense of the contemporary world? Is the commonsensical view enough, the one that we find in all our newspapers? Of course, we talk about the state all the time now, very remarkably, even in the United States of America. Um, But is the commonsensical view enough? Or do we want to rethink our genealogy? which had offered us a number of other possibilities. Well, uh, I'm not going to talk about the neo-Hegelian story, and I would certainly say that if we think about what I call the absolutist story, that's surely of purely historical interest now. The populist story, maybe not, uh, but maybe. What I'm completely sure of is that if you turn to the fictional theory of the state, you come upon a way of thinking that ought never to have been set aside. And that is something that a number of younger political and legal theorists, I'm very struck by the work of Professor Janet McLean, for example, on the fictional person of the state writing as um, a public lawyer. And I'm very struck also by David Runciman's work on the theory of the state. Necessary fictions uh, and Janet McLean's work critical of Benthamite jurisprudence, the indispensability of fictions and especially the fiction of the state. I completely agree with them. And I'll take one minute to say why, and then I'll close. I just need to recall why the proponents of the fictional theory were so anxious to mark a categorical distinction between the apparatus of government and the person of the state. They wanted a criterion of legitimacy. And according to the fictional theory, as we saw, the conduct of government is morally acceptable if and only if it basically serves to protect the, state, the, the welfare and the security of the person of the state. That's to say of our person. It's not a sinister or strange view, the fictional theory. It is that we are the state. We are considered together a fictional person. And the duty of our rulers is to promote the good of that person. Now that is to, of course, to raise um, the spectre which has been central to liberal debate in the last generation, of the ideal of the common good over as and against theories of individual rights. But wasn't it interesting, in the late months of 2008, when the Bush administration in the United States, the most libertarian of the liberal democracies, confronted a complete crisis of its banking system, and Mr. Bush went on television, I watched him, I was living there at the time, to say, there is a paramount need to preserve the republic. He didn't talk about the rights of individuals. The um, majority leader of the Republicans in the Senate attempted to do so and attempted to stop any money being given to the banks, let alone the motor car industries. But it was all given. Who gave it? The state gave it. Why? To preserve its own person. Why? Because if you don't preserve that person, you've got nothing. The only striking thing is that Mr. Bush never used the word state. He would have been thinking a lot more clearly if he'd faced up to the fact that his country is not called the United States for nothing. (laughs) That's not the most powerful reason, however, for wanting to reconsider the fictional theory. The most powerful reason is one which has flitted through all the discussions I've given you of the fictional theory, which is that you need to make sense of the claim that there is a means of binding a community here and now to the remote future. It's remote posterity, in Hobbes' phrase. And here I can't avoid saying that I think Maitland's exemplary example, uh, exemplary case, is the one that it's very good to think about. And it turns out to be phenomenally topical. It's the topic of Maitland's famous essay on the concept of the state, and it is how to theorize public debt. A government decides in moment of crisis enormously to increase the weight of public debt. The question is who is the debtor? All right, the populist theory of the state has a very clear answer. It says the debtor is the body of the people. Well that's extremely bad luck because we haven't got the money to pay. I mean that that is a hopeless answer. The body of the people here and now cannot be the debtor. I mean it is four million million dollars in the United States at the moment? You'd all have to sell your houses. It is at one trillion in this country. Um, we'd all have to sell our houses. It doesn't make any better sense to suggest that the debt must be owed by the government, which is what the commonsensical theory says is the government has taken out this debt. Yes, but if the government changes as it did in the United States, that doesn't cancel the debt. President Obama would have been delighted <laughs> if it was only the previous government that was the debtor So that is also a completely hopeless theory. Neither of these theories can answer the question, who is the debtor? The only theory of the state that can give a coherent answer to that question is the fictional theory. The debt is owed by the person of the state. The person of the state is a fictional person who endures beyond the lifetime of any of us present, we hope, and will be able, we also hope, in the end, to repay that debt. It is a persona ficta, but as far as I can see, in the present state of contract law, there's no other way of making sense of the obligations that governments can incur, especially in questions like public debt, which is going to be an inter- intergenerational debt now, other than by hoping, uh, and I end with Hobbes' fine phrase, that the state does have an artificial eternity of life. Thank you very much. <laughs> <It's> you. <laughs>